You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Abemus Papan. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number sixty-eight. I'm Steve Skojek. Today's episode is brought to you by One Peter Five. Our shows don't have sponsors for the time being, so I just want to remind you, you know, like we do, um, that we're an organization that runs totally on your contributions. If you'd like to help us meet our fundraising goal for June and, you know, pay the bills, uh, please consider doing so at onepeter5.com forward slash donate. Remember, we are a US 501c3, so those donations are tax deductible. We're allowed by law. And now that I've gotten that out of the way... um, Today, there's no guest. Uh, it's just me and some thoughts, uh, much of which I've written down, so you'll have to forgive me if I'm looking at my notes a bit here. Um, if you're not a fan of monologues, this is your chance to run screaming. But I think if you stick around, you'll find that what I have to say today is worth hearing. I think it's pretty important. A mistake I think a lot of folks make in these increasingly polarized times is um, the genetic fallacy. Now, if you're not familiar with that fallacy, it's the sort of thing you encounter when you link to an article about some interesting or important topic and then somebody immediately responds, that's the New York Times. I would never read anything from them. Or, you know, just swap out the New York Times with any outlet they don't like. It could be Breitbart. It could be 1 Peter 5. It doesn't matter. I see it all the time, pretty much every day, actually. Now, it's a mistake for a couple of reasons. First, because the truth is the truth, no matter where you find it. Um, I, I don't care if you find the answer you're looking for to what's going on under a rock or in a trailer park sewer. It doesn't matter. And I've worked on trailer park sewers. There's a reason I use that analogy. They're gross. But facts are facts, and they can usually be verified. Certainly, we should understand the bias of the publication that we're reading. That needs to be taken into account if we're getting information from them. But we should be looking past the opinion or the editorializing or whatever it is to try to identify what might be said therein that is, in fact, real. Because remember, the real counts. Only the real counts. The second thing, the genetic fallacy I should say the second reason that the genetic fallacy is such a huge mistake, in my opinion, is because we are at a strategic disadvantage if we fail to understand the way our enemy thinks. We may think they're full of it. We may think they have nothing to say that we haven't heard before. But the fact is, we're often wrong. Sometimes they lay out their thinking so clearly that they actually tell you exactly what they're planning to do. Right there, in the open. Things you wouldn't know if you didn't take the time to read. All of this is why I don't just read, but I actually pay to subscribe to a little publication called La Croix International. The English version of this magazine, which I believe originated in France, uh, is headed up by a guy called Robert Mickens. If you don't know of him, he's written for a number of publications over the years. He was actually fired by the tablet that's the British Catholic magazine, known by many as The Bitter Pill, uh, for making disparaging comments about Pope Benedict XVI years ago, calling him the rat and asking if one of the cardinals, who he believed should have been elevated sooner, would be going to the rat's funeral. 
he got canned for that and much maligned. Uh, Mickens is also openly homosexual. This should give you an idea of the tenor of the content one finds at La Croix, which, by the way, uh, they also let the little Italian prima donna guy, you know, Max Beans, uh, write a column for them as well. Little Massimo Fagioli and his never-ending airing of grievances against orthodoxy. But, as is actually typical to Mickens himself, there is an unusual candor, I find, at La Croix. There's not really any beating around the bush. The agenda is just out there in the open for us to see, and that can actually be refreshingly informative. So today, I want to talk about two articles I read at La Croix. The first is the story of how the Pontifical Council for Promoting the New Evangelization has put out a new edition of the Directory for Catechesis, which actually hasn't been revised since the pontificate of John Paul II. The directory previously fell under the authority of the Congregation for the Clergy, but remember, the Pontifical Council for Evangelization has become the new mega-dicastery in Rome under Francis. For too long, uh, catechesis has focused, this is a quote, has focused on making the contents of the faith known and on the best pedagogical methods by which to reach this end omitting the most crucial moment, which is the act of deciding for faith and the giving of one's assent, said Archbishop Rhino Fisichella, president of the Pontifical Council for the New Evangelization, at the press conference to launch the new book-like document. Evangelizing is not primarily about transmitting doctrine. Rather, it is about making Jesus Christ present and proclaiming him, states the directory. Not primarily about transmitting doctrine. In short, catechesis is meant to lead to the knowledge of that Christian love, which leads those who have embraced it to become evangelizing disciples, added Archbishop Fisichella. And of course, there's a new emphasis on the pastoral care of migrants and on ecological issues, and the new directory uh, describes the death penalty as inhuman to fall in line with the Pope's erroneous comments about that long-established dogmatic teaching of the faith that the death penalty is at least in principle morally licit, revealed by scripture, affirmed by popes and doctors of the church, immutable, unable to be changed. So the directory also calls catechists uh, experts in the art of accompaniment, which is cool for you catechists out there. Now you can get that uh, art of accompaniment, expert in the art of accompaniment, excuse me, merit badge, for your rainbow catechist sash now, which is nice. So now I want to pivot to a second story. Uh, if that one <laughs> didn't nauseate you enough. And this is, I mean, look, they're totally fundamentally disrupting the way the catechism is, is being taught. They're changing the catechism itself. They're changing the directory. They're changing the emphasis. They're saying it's not about transmitting. Catechesis is not about transmitting doc, uh, doctrine. That's what it is. So the Baltimore Catechism was, that's why people don't know their faith, is because we don't teach it to them. It wasn't taught to me in that form. There's still a lot of gaps in my own knowledge because I didn't go through as an adult and memorize the Baltimore Catechism, should have. I just look something up when I need to know. But but that rote memorization is the kind of stuff that stays with you. It's the, it's the thing that, you know, when, when somebody asks you, why did God make you? Well, to know him, love him, and serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. That's something... 
we know to say because that was how catechesis worked. So now I want to pivot to a story about the Vatican Commission on Women Deacons. One of the members appointed to this commission is a French biblical scholar named Anne-Marie Pelletier. Uh, evidently, it was important for us to know, based on this article that I was reading this morning, that she has a special expertise in the Song of Songs. I'm sure she has quite a collection of romance novels, too. Uh, Pelletier has showed up in the news previously, by the way. I know it's hard to keep track of all the names of all the weirdos that Pope Francis attracts, like moths to a flame, but it was her... Pelletier, who in 2017 uh, was asked by the Pope to write the meditations for the Station of the Cross at the Colosseum on Good Friday of that year. Meditations, the Pope himself went on to read. She's also a big proponent of remarried divorcees, doesn't like the idea of categorizing them as being in adultery, and was involved in some of the preparatory discussions that led to the Synod on the Family in 2015 and to Amoris Laetitia thereafter. Look, it's exhausting, I know, to try to chase down all these interwoven threads because when somebody pops up on the radar today, almost always all I have to do is go back and do a search in our own archives to see where did this person show up before? And I find them, usually in multiple places, because there's a sort of consistency here. What I've seen time and time again in the past six years of watchdogging this Vatican is that Francis goes back to the same well again and again. When he finds somebody he likes, somebody who thinks is in accord with his own mind, he's remarkably loyal. In fact, often to monstrous people who have no place, even if they were not theologically heterodox. I mean, guys like Bishop Zanchetta, who's been charged with sexual abuse and fraud, and he's just been given his job back at, the, at APSA, which is part of the Vatican's financial institution. A guy charged with fraud. It just doesn't make any sense. But Francis is loyal to those who have been loyal to him, who've helped him to attain power. So he And he keeps them in the fold. And so Pelletier did not show up as part of this commission now on women deacons simply because she's some uniquely qualified biblical exegete. She showed up now because she's in the Pope's cadre of existing BFFs. And the fact that she was personally appointed by him should drive this home. She wanted, she was wanted there, and her opinions on the matter at hand were almost certainly already known to the Pope. It wasn't like they'd just met for the first time in some interview process, and he wanted her to bring her perspective to bear on this commission. Which, by the way, is known for having some relatively orthodox people on it as well. Um, but it, it doesn't take a lot of bad apples, as the saying goes. So Pelletier gave an interview to Lacroix, and right out of the starting gate, they tackle the question of this woman named Anne Supa. Now, if you don't know who Anne Supa is, don't feel bad. I didn't either until this morning. Um, apparently, she is a 73-year-old journalist and biblical scholar who applied to be the next Archbishop of Lyon in France. Now, I didn't know people could just apply for Episcopal seats, but she did it. She sent her resume to the papal nuncio. She wants in. Now, she says uh, that she knows it isn't going to happen, but she wants people to be able to imagine a woman being an archbishop without it being a joke. Sorry, Annie, sweetie. I think we're going to have to mark that mission as failed. Well, I should say, 
it's failed for all the sane people out there who are nonetheless laughing maniacally every day at all the things that are going on in the church, um, often against their own better judgment. It's just, if you don't laugh, you cry. Anyway, officials in the Archdiocese of Lyon are apparently taking her, Anne, far more seriously than she deserves, saying that they don't want to dismiss the symbolic character of her application to be the archbishop. I think they should dismiss it, but they don't want to. You know, because it's super duper important to them to promote the place of women in the church. It's super duper important. You must understand the Archbishop of uh, Poitiers wrote also an incomprehensible bit of psychobabble affirming her stunt as serious without ever really saying anything. It is important that everybody be seen to be playing the accommodating and inclusive role. If I read the whole thing like this, you're going to kill me. So Pelletier launches her interview by talking about this move by Supi, Supa, whatever. And she's actually not in favor of Supa's initiative because she says, well, this isn't how it's done. One is called, she says, to a position of responsibility within the church. One doesn't apply for it. You have to be called to it. And she disputes the idea of competing to take over existing roles. And this, this is going to be an important theme as we move forward through uh, her interview because it is implied new roles should be created for women. Now, she seems not entirely imp uh, opposed to the idea of women in the ministerial priesthood, but it's almost dealt with dismissively. She condemns the idea of any of this discussion being about power or competition over roles. Pelletier wants to see women exercising authority in the church regardless of the role. She mentions that they should be doing this at the parish level, in Episcopal councils, in the Pope's council, and even in the College of Cardinals. Um, she also emphasizes that these other potential roles she sees for women in the church, um, well, she doesn't emphasize, it's, it's implicit in emphasizing these roles for women in the church, she is implicitly de-emphasizing the priesthood. And in fact, she says straight out that it, quote, cannot be the sole authority to decide on the life and governance of the church, end quote. So the priesthood for women, the diaconate for women, in other words, is not enough. Pletier thinks that some lesser female diaconate would only, quote, confirm the inequality between men and women, end quote. Now, it's not clear what she's talking about when she says a lesser female diaconate, I assume. That would mean a non-ordained diaconate, since that's one of the discussions. Can't, women can't participate in holy orders, so what if they made them functionary deacons, you know, whatever. Whatever that would entail. I don't even know what that would entail because none of this makes any sense. Um, her emphasis, though, is on opening the ministries of the church to both sexes in different states of life. Again, we see in her comments not the desire for an elevation of women to the higher calling, higher dignity of the priesthood, but rather a desire to take the priesthood down a few pegs so that women can be more important because if the priesthood's not that important, then maybe the roles that they have will be. Now, I have to tell you, to me, this feels even more insidious than trying to ordain women. 
Not only because attacks on the priesthood seem to be common throughout history and all the heresies and destructive forces hellbent against the church, but because this is also the typical kind of misandry and, and hypocrisy that we see from the feminist mind. They say they don't want to be lesser versions of men, and they go on and on about equality, but they have no problem diminishing men or men's roles so that they can be aggrandized, so that they can be put on a pedestal. They want to see men subjugated. They want to see men brought low. They feel that it's just. Many of them feel that they are superior. It's a massive double standard. Obviously, they don't care. The priesthood is a traditionally male role, and if they can't have it, they would rather destroy it and put something else in its place. On the specifics of the work of the commission, Pelletier says that in 1997, the commission that studied this, this would have been under John Paul II, tended towards favoring a women's diaconate, but ultimately they decided against promoting that. She does not substantiate this. I don't know if it's true. Honestly, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because it's not like all of this stuff started in 2013 when Francis became Pope. It's just been escalating all along. Then she says in 2016, the commission formed by Pope Francis agreed that deaconesses existed, but not how. They couldn't decide on whether they were ordained or not. What was their role in the church? Now, I want to read a section of her interview to you here because it sort of sets the stage. Um, quote, Today, the Pope is relaunching a new commission, of which I am a member. Its work, it seems to me, will have to begin with the question of fidelity to tradition. Irony much? Is it a static reality as such a normative one that we can only repeat? Or are we not being asked for a work of creativity, of aggiornamento? Love that word. Uh, updating, as Father Conger taught. That would be Eve Conger. Conger. In the same way, we will certainly have to uphold the present church while starting afresh from the needs of Christian communities and taking into account the lived realities. These buzzwords, like lived realities, these phrases, are you could drive a tractor trailer through them. They're, they're so ambiguous, and they justify so much in the minds of these people. Well, this is their lived reality, and we have to accommodate it somehow. Well, they're already remarried, and they've got new kids. And I mean, technically, you could say that they're, they're living in adultery, but the lived reality is they need to stay together for the good of these kids, and we need to find a solution for them. It's what they always use. Let us not forget that this commission is an extension of the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region. No, we should not forget that. Which highlighted the reality of communities deprived of priests, having survived only thanks to Catholic women, who are entirely devoted to the faith and the exercise of charity. It is to be hoped that these communities will receive institutional and sacramental empowerment, and that others may be called for such a ministry confirmed by ordination. That's an interesting turn of phrase there, that others may be called for such a ministry confirmed by ordination. She doesn't specify who those others might be. So that seems like an open door um, to the institution. But based on the rest of what she says, I really don't think that's what she's working for. So that's the end of her quote there. But this is, again, painting with a very broad brush 
And so we can see the blank check that Francis has written here, these ambiguities that they're going to exploit, which is what they've done for 60, 70 years now. I wonder if perhaps after reading this today and think this through with me here, you let me know if you think I'm wrong. We may have been too narrowly focused on the institutions that we're seeking to protect, namely the priesthood and the diaconate, holy orders, without realizing that for these quote-unquote reformers, the institutions are actually just roadblocks that they need to either bulldoze or go around. They don't actually necessarily care about the diaconate or the priesthood. They only care about empowerment. They can use the lack of vocations in countries where the church has destroyed itself by being awful and tepid and progressive and unappealing for decades. Now there's no vocations because the church there has just sucked for so long. And who wants to be a priest? Who wants to give up a family for that or whatever? And now there's no priests. And they use that as an excuse to just start creating new positions where there are no rules already established that they have to overcome. Who needs priests? We'll just put lay men and lay women in there to do these ministries. You know, priests, they're a thing of the past, right? They're, they're clerical. And this is something that kind of comes up here. So Pelletier specifically points out that it isn't, is not, a kind of clericalization to simply receive a mandate from a bishop to perform some active ministry within the church. She actually calls clericalism a vice. This idea, again, the clergy are constantly being made into the enemy. Anything that's clericalized, any hierarchical role, any authority that's given to them, the decision-making power, the sacramental power, this all winds up getting rolled up under this weird definition of clericalism. I mean, there is a kind of clericalism that is a cancer in the church. And it's the kind of clericalism that Francis has. It's the one that says, I get to let my buddies keep having these jobs because they're my buddies, they're my friends. You know? I mean, clericalism in the past was also bad when it came to things like kids who were sexually abused by a priest, and then they would talk to their parents about it, and their parents would say, how dare you ever speak about a priest that way? No priest would ever do that. We don't talk about priests like that in this home. You read this in some of these testimonies of kids who were abused by priests. The priest took advantage, the, the ones who were predators, took advantage of the respect that the laity had for the priesthood to keep those kids silent. They knew their parents wouldn't hear a word against a priest. And they knew there were plenty of pious quotations from saints that would be used against them about never speaking ill of a priest because then you're speaking ill of Christ and you're going to, you know, all this stuff. That's bad clericalism. But this clericalism that they're referring to is a much bigger thing. It's, it's the institution of being a cleric itself, of being a priest, of being a deacon, of being a bishop, Somehow that becomes the offensive thing. This is my read. They may disagree with me, but that's my take on it. So the question that I have is, why do I feel like we're guarding the castle while this invading army is coming? And we think the treasure is inside. We got to guard this. We got to protect it. We're manning the walls. And that army comes and they just sweep around the castle and they go out to the farmlands all around from which we draw our nourishment because they don't care about what we have within the fortress. They don't care about the institutions. 
they're going to suck away the lifeblood that feeds them. They're going to make the treasure that we're protecting inside the, the fortress, the priesthood, holy orders. They're going to make it irrelevant. They're going to cut it off. There's no, no longer going to be a food source for those who need to be nourished within because they're going to erect parallel castles with their own versions of, of these forms. And then they're, they're just going to say, well, now we don't need priests anymore. That's what I am starting to think is the goal. And Pelletier lays it out flat out. Here's another quote from her. Um, I want you to hear the whole thing. Quote, we should certainly not confine ourselves to what we know from the past. The woman diaconate was essentially dedicated to the service of women, especially in the celebration of baptism by immersion. Today, we are in a very different situation and one that varies from country to country. This diversity must be taken into account, as must the new conditions of ecclesial life in a country like ours. The diaconate should allow women to baptize and to celebrate marriages, just as it should allow them to preach. In the same way, actions that confer grace could be enhanced. For example, when a woman or a male who is not a priest hears a confession, even without being able to give absolution, Sacramental grace is not limited to our seven sacraments alone. Hearing confession without giving absolution is basically therapy, if you're lucky. And honestly, I'm not interested in going to some lay person, laytron, and talk to them about whatever I've done. I, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to just skip right ahead to the Protestant view and go straight to God. Why would I want to talk to them? The only reason I drag my butt to the confessional is because I want the grace of absolution. I want the grace of, of fortitude so that I can go back out into the world and hopefully not commit that sin again, or at least not do it five minutes after I walk out of the confessional like a moron, because I am, you know, I, I need those graces. I don't want to talk to you about what I've done wrong. Go take a hike. Get out of my face. You're not. No. You're not a priest. You don't get to hear this. You have nothing to offer me. They don't want to take over the church, guys. They don't want to take over the priesthood. Not in the sense of taking over what exists. Because remember, we should certainly not confine ourselves to what we know from the past. No, they want to reinvent the church. They want to reinvent the priesthood. They want catechesis to stop being about teaching people what the faith is. They want evangelization to be about the environment and about friggin' immigrants. They want to make the priesthood irrelevant by building new roles that totally circumvent the priesthood. Roles that men or women or androgynous trans people, I mean, who knows, could hold. Roles that aren't even actually sacramental, they just ape sacramentality. I find that as I was reflecting on all of this today, in preparation for this show, I recognize that it sounds a lot like something uh, that Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich mentioned in one of her visions. I hope you'll forgive me for once again reading a bit of a longer excerpt, but tell me if this isn't at least reminiscent of what we're discussing right now. 
So this is her vision from September 12th, 1820. I got this from, there's a lot of these really poorly put together quotes from her on the internet, often filled with ellipsis, taken out of context. Be careful. Even Yves Dupont takes her out of context in his book. Try to get the original. So this is taken from the uh, Life and Revelations of Anne Catherine Emmerich, Volume 2, Tan Books. Tan Books has all of her stuff in a, in a compilation. You can get it on Kindle. It's not that expensive. Uh, if you really want to find her stuff, this is where you want to get it from. So September 12th, 1820. I saw a fantastic, odd-looking church being built. The choir was in three parts, each raised some steps above the last, and under it was a deep vault full of fog. On the first platform of the choir was a seat, on the second a basin of water, on the third a table. I saw no angel helping in the construction, but numbers of the most violent planetary spirits dragging all sorts of things into the vault, where persons in little ecclesiastical mantles received them and deposited them in their various places. Nothing was brought from above. All came from the earth and the dark regions. All was built up by the planetary spirits. The water alone seemed to have something holy about it. I saw an enormous number of instruments brought into the church, and many persons, even children, had different tools, as if trying to make something. But all was obscure, absurd, dead. Division and destruction reigned everywhere. Nearby, I saw another church, shining and rich with graces from on high, angels ascending and descending. In it were life and increase, tepidity and dissipation, and yet it was like a tree full of sap compared with the other, which was like a chest of lifeless institutions. The former was like a bird on the wing, the latter like a paper dragon, its tail adorned with ribbons and writings, dragging over a stubble field. I saw that many of the instruments in the new church, such as spears and darts, which were meant to be used against the living church, everyone dragged in something different. Clubs, rods, pumps, cudgels, puppets, mirrors, trumpets, horns, bellows, all sorts of things. In the cave below the sacristy, some people needed bread, but nothing came of it. It would not rise. The men in the little mantles brought wood to the steps of the pulpit to make a fire. They puffed and blew and labored hard, but the fire would not burn. All they produced was smoke and fumes. Then they broke a hole in the roof and ran up a pipe. But the smoke would not rise, and the whole place became black and suffocating. Some blew the horns so violently that tears streamed from their eyes. All in this church belonged to the earth, returned to the earth. All was dead, the work of human skill, a church of the latest style, a church of man's invention, like the new heterodox church in Rome. All was dead, the work of human skill, a church of the latest style, a church of man's invention. That is what this is. That is what they're building. It doesn't even matter, honestly, if this situation right now is what Emmerich was talking about because the analogy fits. We are seeing the construction of a church without meaning or purpose. It's actually what I've been saying from the beginning of this pontificate, and I've taken a lot of grief for it. It's all imminentism. It's all about the here and now. 
All this excessive concern about the environment, the poor, the unfairness of economic systems, unemployment, weapons manufacturers, the loneliness of the elderly, and on and on. It's all of a piece. It's all about trying to make some kind of earthly utopia. And the kind of people who want to make an earthly utopia are almost always the same ones who don't believe in an eternal one. Francis sometimes says orthodox things. And I have occasionally provoked ire from people because I will say, just stop, don't, don't talk when he says those things because I believe that he's lying. I believe that he is manipulating. I believe that he's gaslighting. He is using things that sound Catholic to manipulate the inherent papal positivism is the wrong word, but the inherent benefit of the doubt that we give to a papacy. We're Catholics. We want to be docile to the Pope. And he uses that instinct against us by throwing us little bones and scraps that say, oh, well, he said this thing. That sounded totally orthodox. Yeah, but he doesn't act like it. He doesn't, none of his actions follow his words and many of his words contradict his words. I don't have a reason to believe the man is a Catholic in any meaningful sense of the word because he hasn't given me one. And these people that we're talking about today that are changing the church, remaking it in their own image, are the people he put in power and empowers and never stops. He just gives them more resources and says, go, make a mess. If you don't believe in heaven, why would you not try to make heaven, or at least your bizarre conception of it, exist right here, right now? So I'm starting to think, in the grand scheme of things, that maybe we're only in the nascent stages of the anti-church within the church. But even though it's taken us a century to get this far, maybe we've only been in the deconstruction phase up until now. They had to rip everything up. It's taken them this long to actually tear down all the old institutions so that they can begin replacing them with new ones. So we could be in for a long haul here. I know some of you are excited about the apocalypse or the chastisement. I'm not. I... <laughs> It's going to stank, you guys. I mean, Our Lady said in Akita that when it comes, the living are going to envy the dead. So either you get to die with your kids. That's not going to be a fun day on earth. Or you get to be the people who envy the dead. I don't welcome this. I'm not in a hurry for this. If it's God's will, it's God's will. But if you're going to ask me how I feel about it, I'm not excited about it. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to have grandkids. I want to, you know, there's countries I haven't traveled to. I, I would like to spend more time at the ocean and in the redwood forest. And there's a lot of stuff I'd like to do before I kick the bucket. And yeah, I know we don't know when we're going to die. We never do. But if you're asking me what I want, I'm not excited about this happening. We were all just sitting here trying to be faithful. We were trying to do the best we could. We were trying to go to the best masses we could. We were trying to get our families holy. We were trying to teach them the faith. Why we're going to get our butts kicked too. And we were trying to do the right thing. So no, I'm not excited about it. And if you are, maybe you should ask yourself what's wrong because it's not exciting. 
But on the other hand, it's not very exciting to think that this is going to drag out for another century or two. I mean, who knows how long it is? God's way of looking at things is not our way. He, it's a mistake, and it's one that I've made to think, oh, things have gotten so bad, there's no way. How, how much worse can they get? He's totally going to intervene now. And then when he doesn't, you've set yourself up for disappointment. And you start wondering, where is he? What is he doing? Why is he not here? His ways are not our ways. His view of time is nothing like our view of time. And so we have to be ready for this to be a long haul scenario. We're basically in the castle to mix in my metaphor from before, you know, preparing for an extended siege. The only thing that we can do is hold fast and keep asking him, what do you want us to do? And on that note, it's Friday, and I know I'm being a bit of a Debbie Downer, but I'm going to wrap up this episode. It's a little shorter than usual because I think there's a lot to chew on here. Um, I just ask, you know, if you like this video, please remember to give us a like, uh, share it with your family and friends, subscribe to our channel, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use if you're doing the audio only version. And please, of course, as always, remember to support our work at onepeter5.com forward slash donate. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. God bless you. We'll see you next time.